0: Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and today we have a very special guest. Her name is Connie Akins, and she has traveled across oceans and continents. She has exchanged multiple forms of currency, and she has haggled employees at airports to arrive here beside me. I am so fortunate. To be interviewing my mom today (laughs) how are you doing
1: good very glad to be here
0: so this is your opportunity to enshrine your story in mp3 format forever okay so you've come to bulgaria at first just give me kind of some of your impressions of the country
1: all my impressions are so positive we have spent our whole time here in the capital city of Sophia and the people are beautiful and healthy and vibrant and friendly and incredibly social and feels very positive. The whole energy of Sophia is very positive. We are enjoying ourselves immensely.
0: What do you think is the favorite thing that you've eaten here?
1: Oh, Well, there have been so many beautiful, wonderful things I've eaten. It's hard to pick a favorite, but I think that Parmesan thing we had it Happy—I didn't have it, but you and Estelle had it. Wow, that was out of this world.
0: And Happy, Happy is like a uh, non-GMO version of probably like your favorite favorite American restaurant. But, it's, but it's, it's, it's very, very good. So, okay. Let's rewind the clock quite a bit. Let's travel back in time. What is your first memory?
1: My first memory? Yep. Well, I wish I could give you a positive answer, but my first memory is rather negative. Uh, I remember being very little, probably three, in our home that we lived in, out in the country, outside of Durango, Colorado. And I remember that I was crying, and I remember that there was a lot of noise and chaos around me, and it was a pretty negative moment. That's Uh actually my first memory.
0: Uh Aha. Okay. And what did your parents do?
1: My father was an entrepreneur, which is strong in my family's heritage and in my children as well. What was his name? Woody. Woody Akins. Woody Woodrow Wilson Akins. Woody Akins, and he owned a number of companies throughout his life. But by the time I was born into our family, he owned a roofing company, and he did that until he retired. Mm-hmm. My mom was a homemaker. She was very busy. There were seven kids in our family and she did many things to support the home and the family as well as she was very involved in community projects and things relating to her church.
0: And tell us a little bit about the place you grew up.
1: So I grew up in just a basic old house in a newer neighborhood. It was a little four-bedroom home in a traditional neighborhood But I grew up in a beautiful, beautiful city, Durango, Colorado. If you've ever been there, you know it's spectacularly beautiful. I, as a child, never noticed the beauty growing up. But I can't help but think living in that pure air with that gorgeous scenery around me all the time as a child influenced me in some positive way. And
0: what was a lesson that you learned from your father?
1: You know, when I was a young mom, my husband and I were going through a really terrible time financially. and That I would,
0: would be my father.
1: That would be your father, right? My husband and I. Eric yeah, Roseland. Eric, your dad. I'd call my parents just so, so in despair, hoping they could give me any answer. And my mom and I would talk and talk and talk and talk. And then my dad would get on the phone and he'd say, just don't give up, con. You're going to make it through this. And the first few times he said that, I was kind of mad at him because I wanted some profound wisdom. But after a while, I realized that was actually very profound wisdom. Just don't give up. You're going to make it through this. I think that was great wisdom that he passed on to me.
0: So he was a stoic man.
1: He was quite the stoic man. And...
0: What are what's a lesson that you learned from your mother?
1: So my mom taught me many, 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 many lessons, and she wasn't a very good mother, to be honest. I can say this now that she's passed away. Even though I think she would agree with this, she wasn't a very good mom. She had some emotional damage herself, but when she when when I became an adult, she and I became the dearest friends, and. She was just a tremendously positive influence on my life as an adult. And one of the things she said to me, it was at my wedding shower. My church put on this huge wedding shower for me. And she was the guest speaker. Surprise. And she said, just remember this. The worst things that happen to you are the best things that happen to you. With the point being that every bad thing that happens to you there is a lesson to learn. There is character to be gained. There is a purity of your soul that come from it. That There are things that come to you and happen to you out of the disasters in life you're not going to get anywhere else. And that actually is something I've carried with me and believe is a theme of life. But she said that I'll never forget it. The best, The worst things that happen to you are the best things that happen to you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So would you say that you learned more from your parents as an adult than you did as a child or in your youth?
1: Well, I think you're learning. It's just what are you learning? Are you learning things that are going to help you and promote you forward? Are you learning things that you shouldn't be learning that are going to be harmful to you? So I think that the things in my childhood, there was a lot of harm in my childhood, and my parents were loving to me when I became an adult, which was kind of weird to try to figure that out, why they loved me now and weren't so loving when I was younger. But in the end, it was what I decided to do with that. It was my responsibility to go and take care of those childhood issues, so... I don't don't really know how to answer that since I'm still in the process of healing from those wounds. Once I get a little more healing, I may have a better answer for you where and how I learned the most. But right now, just knowing I'm responsible for my own future, my own mental health and emotional health.
0: Okay. And you lived in Durango until when?
1: So I lived in Durango until the week I graduated from high school, and that very week I moved to San Diego. I wanted to get away from Durango as hard and as fast as I could because I wanted to be independent and live on my own, and I definitely wanted to go where the sun shone. There was no winter, and there was a beach. So I moved to San Diego that week, and I stayed there for, oh, maybe the next seven years, and pretty much loved every minute of it. I loved San Diego. What's
0: a memory you have of San Diego that stands out?
1: Wow. Uh, When you say that, the first thing that comes to mind is just being at the beach. San Diego has these wonderful cliffs you can stand Mm -hmm. up and when the surf is coming in, it just crashes against those rocks and shoots up this fantastic spray and uh then there's a wonderful beach there mission B- mission bay there's a great beach there so i'm just thinking about the beach and the sun and the water and just that wonderful beautiful joyful and entertaining connection with nature on the beach
0: mhm what's a what might be a secret that you kept throughout your youth and childhood that you eventually were able to open up about?
1: Wow, we're just going right to the heart of things, are we?
0: (laughs) Well, we'll dip in deep every once in a while.
1: Okay, that's a good deep one. Well, recently, in the last two years, even though I am a woman definitely moving out of middle age, I have discovered the great secret of my life which is that there was a great sense of fear and terror that drove me to protect myself and that I used everything in my life to try to protect myself. I used every relationship I had. I used all my mental, emotional, and physical assets. I used my faith I used my husband. I used anything and everything I could to try to build a protective shell around me by trying to be this really awesome, wonderful, loving, caring, good person. And my hope was that if I did that well enough, then the people I encountered in my life would not kill me and reject me and hate me. I never understood that that drove me my whole life. It drove everything I did. It was a shocking revelation when that happened. That is the big secret. It was a secret for me. But now that I see it, I have all this opportunity to make some changes and to live a more authentic life, because the way I lived, nothing was motivated by the reality of wanting these things. It was all motivated out of fear, fear to protect myself.
0: And how did you stumble across that revelation? Was there a process? Was it a journaling thing, a therapy thing? Well,
1: it was a long process. I've been journaling my family issues for many, many years, and I've made a lot of progress. But what I realize now is all those things were just getting me ready to see this, and It was just a couple of incidents, pretty simple ones, not even that big a deal, but they triggered me so deeply. You know that term triggering, when someone does something that makes you feel something so strong, you know it's not about what they did, it's about something inside of you. There were two little incidents that triggered me and they were both in proximity to each other of about a month, but those two things together, were the beginning of me understanding this gigantic, enormous, uh, this gigantic, enormous, inauthentic life that I had lived. So, do you want me to talk about those two incidents or is that enough? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Describe those concisely. Okay.
1: Well, don't ever say concisely to me because <laughs> I go on for several hours, but I can generally describe them in this way. One was a, f- a niece of my husband's had been given some great honors, academically as well as athletically. And I, as soon as I heard it, I started feeling very bad inside of me. and I just got feeling worse and worse, and I knew I was being triggered. I knew something deeper was going on. And so I went and I did my journaling. I have this very special kind of journaling I do that helps me discover what's really going on beyond the trigger.
0: Is there a name of that journaling?
1: Well, I call it jubilee journaling. It's got a number of reasons why I call it jubilee journaling, but there's a, there is a specific scripture in the Hebrew Old Testament that talks about the jubilee of the Lord, where people will be healed, their eyes will be opened, the lame will be made whole, people's lives will be restored. And that's what this journaling does for me and some other people that I've shared it with. It's very restorative. So I used to call it healing journaling, but now I call it jubilee journaling. It's way beyond healing.
0: And we'll we'll link to that in the podcast show notes.
1: Okay, thank you. So when I went and journaled this, I discovered that what had triggered me was the fact that this young woman, because of her accomplishments, was able to get into what I call the winner circle. And that this desire, this intense driving desire to get in the winner's circle had been with me my whole life. And that everything I was doing was trying to get into the winner's circle. And yet no matter how hard I worked at it, I never seemed to make it there. And it seemed like it took nothing to knock me back to zero. So that was the first incident. The second incident was I missed this little event at my church. I wasn't in charge. I wasn't responsible. But somehow missing it accidentally triggered these terrible, terrible feelings inside of me. And when I went and journaled them, I realized the other part of the winner's circle. The reason I was trying so hard to get into the winner's circle was I felt, well, I had this image in my mind of standing on the edge of this gigantic chasm ocean that was filled with dark masses and horrible terrifying things and poisonous stuff and it was dark and there were writhing waters and sea creatures i'm standing right on the edge of it and anybody who comes along anybody at all can come along and can Give me a little shove on the back and I'll fall right into it. I was completely helpless to stop anybody from shoving me right in it. And I lived in fear that I would be shoved in at any minute. And I got that picture so clear in this second journaling and I realized, wow, this is a picture of how I felt my whole life. That I'm standing on the edge of utter disaster. And the only thing I can do to save myself from someone pushing me in is try to, in any way I can make people want to be nice to me by, by many things. I used everything I could, but one of the big things I I used was asking people questions and listening to them and sympathizing with them, which I think are some of my natural born gifts, but I use them to try to diffuse any kind of anger they might have towards me. And sometimes it worked and I learned to choose a really positive safe people but every now and then i'd get pushed into that writhing mass of torture and i would just be in agony until i found a way to crawl out of it but those were the two incidents that really helped me get this a picture of what how i'd really lived my life what had really been at the core of my essence
0: Mm -hmm. okay let's go back to san diego you met my father there
1: yeah in a linguistics class at san diego state university
0: and what were your first impressions of him
1: Well, it was funny because my dear, dear friend Jill, who was my maid of honor, she came to that class with me, even though she was going to a different university, but she was highly interested in linguistics. She was training to be a translator. And she came to that class with me, and she saw this man there, Eric, Eric Roseland, and she had met him two years before. And told me all this stuff about him. And we both thought, my gosh, what a wonderful guy. And why can't we marry someone like that? So here he was sitting right in this class, right next to me. And he was so happy to see Jill. They talked and talked with each other. And he kind of barely even noticed me. But I was very interested in him. And I definitely definitely was the pursuer.
0: Was he good looking?
1: He was to me, even though he had these dorky glasses that they were military issue and they were broken and he had them taped up in the middle. (laughs) I mean, it was not his best look.
0: And what was the first date that you had?
1: So the first date was two of my brothers had come to town and quite a number of us were going to go out for this big Chinese dinner at a really good Chinese restaurant and I invited him to come. And um, he said sure, even though he had class, he agreed to go with me instantly. But I remember as we were driving, he was driving my car. I had this old, like this gold Malibu, and he was driving my gold Malibu. And I remember he, we were talking about something and he reached over to squeeze my hand up. I was sitting on the car seat next to us where it was a bench seat and he squeezed it but he held it just a second longer than he needed to oh,
0: very smooth
1: yes it was it was so that was the beginning it was a beautiful it wasn't i guess it wasn't really a first date but it was our first time going out you know and all my family liked him right away they're like oh yeah eric's good hang on to that guy
0: and how long did you date before you got married
1: We dated, I think, 10 months.
0: 10 months before you got married. Yeah,
1: I think so. Maybe a little longer.
0: Uh-huh. And you did something, well, it would certainly be unique nowadays, which is that you never slept together before you got married.
1: We did not.
0: And th- this is something that to so many people would just seem uh, so uh, non-pragmatic that would just seem uh so so difficult was this was this something that you talked about how did how did that work out because a lot of people would just say that he just wouldn't a guy might not spend his time spend 10 months or invest 10 months of time into a woman that you don't sleep with
1: well you gotta remember this was this was close to 40 years ago and the sexual ideas and concepts and have changed dramatically in 40 years but
0: but you're er- still in California it's a pretty little yeah,
1: place I- Eric Roseline and I though were both really super dedicated to being not just this kind of facsimile or superficial rendition or we really wanted to be real christians people who actually believed in god actually believed in the bible actually put our faith into our lives in a real way we both felt very strongly about that the bible was real clear you know there's not to be sex before marriage we believed that we believed that a lot of other people did at the time too i'm sure there was a lot more who didn't But still, it wasn't like today. Back then, not having sex before you were married was still an option that people talked about and did, and I'm sure there's still some that do now, a few. But no, we both made that commitment. We both agreed to it, and we actually did talk about it a lot, and worked it, worked very hard, especially through our engagement, of staying true to that commitment we had made.
0: Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Some some people really do take their religions seriously. Some people are willing to sacrifice a little bit of pleasure for their for their values. And without something like religion, without some without faith in uh, metaphysical uh, justice for your decisions, it, it's really hard for people to not succumb to the hedonistic offerings available before them.
1: You know, I, I think about this a lot because our culture has changed so much in the last generation or so that I have this little saying, I say that we eat, drink and breathe our culture. We can't help but be influenced by it. And I understand that we're all influenced by it, even those of us who want to stay true to some kind of external value system that is not in sync with our culture. But we are all influenced by our culture. We can't help but be. And I think sexual attitudes are a gigantic cultural thing that has influenced everybody. I think if we lived a 100 years ago we would all feel like the things I'm saying right now are completely normal and natural and healthy and even good because that was our culture back then. So it's challenging. It's challenging to know where you let yourself flow with your culture and where you choose values that you say, these are my values regardless of whether the culture accepts and affirms them or not.
0: I heard an interesting uh, theory from... Uh, kind of an evolutionary psychology perspective that the the purpose of human culture and especially as you travel as you go around the world a little bit you you really when you experience other cultures you you really see uh, what what an interesting thing human culture is and I heard a, a evolutionary psychology perspective saying that the the reason for culture the reason we we have uh, culture is is that it's because human beings take such a long time to mature. Hmm. There's lots of other, many other mammals, Hmm. you know, they are born, and then within a couple of hours, couple of days, a week or two, they are walking, they're basically able to take care of themselves. But us human beings, we need... About a decade, maybe two decades, often two decades, before we're we're able to take care of ourselves. And uh, culture exists because we need all these different systems of values and social ostracization and kind of shared myths and beliefs that will motivate us to take care of the young until they're self-sustaining.
1: Interesting. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. I, I like that idea because you see the, the animal world, if we want to call it something so ungeneralized as that, but the animal world, many, 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 many creatures in the animal world have powerful instincts that provide all that they need to be self-sufficient in their environment. But we don't have that, even though we do have some instincts, but we are hugely devoid of the instincts that many of the creatures, the living organic creatures have in this, in our world that makes them able to reproduce and function and live and thrive. We don't have those. And the idea that culture is a substitute for instinct mm-hmm. is an interesting concept.
0: Okay. What was a time that you thought You were going to die.
1: When I was a little kid, I was very afraid every single night. I was actually terrified. And when I got older, I read some research, and probably many of you know this, that the more creative and artistic a child is, the more, and and not just a child, an adult as well, the more nightmares they have. And I had a lot of nightmares, very scary ones, and I was often terrified. (laughs) It's kind of funny to think about it now, but in our safe little tiny town of Durango, I was often terrified there was someone in our house that was coming to kill me. So I was scared terribly about that, that I was going to die. I did fear that a lot as a little child, that I was going to die.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, what was a book that you read, like in your youth, maybe when you were a teenager, that had some influence on your life as an adult?
1: There was a book that had a tremendous influence on me, and I read it as a teenager. It was called Hide or Seek, and it was by Dr. James Dobson. And this book talked about children that are raised to have healthy self-esteems versus children that are not. How their lives go different directions, and the first chapter of his book, or second, maybe maybe he had like an introductory chapter. But the first, the first bit of of powerful writing for me was a chapter called "Beauty, the Golden Coin of Human Worth," and then the next chapter was called "Intelligence, the Silver Coin of Human Worth," and this is old hat to everybody now. But it was the first I'd ever heard of it, that beauty and intelligence are a tremendous source of worth. And if you have them, our culture is going to value you. And if you don't have them, our culture is not going to value very much. But what it did for me was it introduced me to this amazing world that I'm still utterly enthralled with. And that's the world of what's going on behind The words we say, the actions we do, the responses we have, what's happening inside of us on that hidden level. The psychology, the emotions, the the stuff that our brains and our emotion and our heart and our feelings are all struggling with and fighting and, and figuring out how to be in this world. That book introduced me to that world, and I have, I found that utterly fascinating from the word go, and I still do. I still love that world, and still working on figuring out wonderful new ways to live and survive and thrive and share miracles of what we can do with that world to make all of our lives better.
0: Aha! Uh-huh. Okay, uh, beauty's the gold coin, intelligence is the silver coin. Did he make a distinction in talking about men and men and women with those currencies? You know,
1: I read this when I was maybe 16. So that's over 40 years ago. And he might have. It was way before we really understood a lot about uh, gender sensitivity and non-generalization of human beings. But he might have. I don't remember that clearly. But I do remember this interesting thing he said. He said, just watch when you're watching a TV show or a movie. Someone's good if they're beautiful. Someone's good if they're intelligent. But if they are both beautiful and smart, wow, they are the cream of the crop. Mm -hmm. And then I started watching that and I saw it everywhere. The beautiful, intelligent person was just the most highly sought, highly valued person. Mm -hmm.
0: There's this uh, philosopher I like, Stefan Molyneux, I think I might have mentioned him to you before. He talks about how there's this uh, interesting dynamic between men and women where you have young men and young women you know maybe they're in their like their early 20s or or you know people uh, you know around the same age as me and gergana my wife and that women most most women are somewhat beautiful when they're younger they have that nice youthful energy the slimness they have uh the curvature um and that there's incredible value there And this, you know, you look at any, like you said, any television show, any advertising, any celebrity, and it's you're going to see beautiful women on your screens. Right. And so with with women, in a sense, women, they kind of receive like a Ferrari when they're about 16, 17, 18 years old, as far as like the value that they have to society and over time that's going to predictably decline not not so much if they're uh, using all the types of anti-aging stuff that I like to talk about unlimited mindset but pretty predictably that's going to that's going to decline and then men are very very different you know a, a young a young guy i guess if he goes to the gym or whatever is going to be uh, about half of them are good looking about half of them not so much but the that value and the beauty that a young man has it's it's a tiny fraction of what a woman is going to have but the the man 's value is really in yeah in his intelligence and in his capacity to build something to be ambitious to provide value to the world so it's kind of it's kind of interesting because when you have uh, young men and women that are meeting in the sexual marketplace the woman her value is exceedingly obvious, uh, you know, just based upon that first impression, based upon based upon her beauty, based upon her uh, her physical signs of fertility. Whereas the man is a little bit he's a little bit of a question mark because you meet uh, a young woman meets a young man and he seems, uh, he seems he seems, you know, he has a nice personality he seems kind of charming, but she really doesn't. She, she's not going to give him an IQ test. <laughs> she's not going to know if he has that intelligence that he's going to end up being like a CEO or some type of entrepreneur or someone who does really well for him or if he's going to end up being a real loser. And so uh, so Stefan, it, he talks about how uh, women need... Women, at least traditionally, perhaps this is something that we're losing, they have these different ways of kind of sniffing out a guy and, <laughs> and, fi- and figuring out if he's going to be a good bet. Because when the man chooses the woman, it's a little bit less of a, of a bet that he's making because all those signs of fertility, they're just, they're just so clear to see.
1: So that reminds me of a funny story. Do we have time for a funny story? Oh yeah! So this story, in some of your some of your readers may your 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 listeners, sorry, may know this wonderful story about the husband store. That in New York City, there's a place called the husband store. Have I you bet. heard this?
0: Uh, maybe.
1: Okay, so there's a husband store, and it's five stories high, and Each store you go to has a kind of husband on it. You can go pick out any husband you want. Or you can go to the next floor and see what they have up there. There's only one rule, and that is you cannot go back to the floor you left. Mm. So the story goes like this. On the first floor are husbands who are good-looking. So a woman and her friend go in and are like, "Wow, look!" These at are them. like the
0: mannequins that are down there. At no, the these mall. are
1: actually real husbands. Ah, they okay. can pick one out Pro- and take them home. They can
0: be displayed in the glass.
1: No, they go in and look at them. They're all <laughs> standing all around. I guess they can touch them and talk to them, and you know,
0: you'd want to touch them a little bit, make sure all the parts are working
1: or something like that. <laughs> That's right. So the first, the first floor is the good-looking men. And a woman and her friend go in and they're like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever, a husband's store. Let's see what's on floor two. Of course, right? So they go up to floor two and these are husbands who are good looking and great providers. And they can't believe it. Here are all these wonderful looking guys who are also great providers. And they see three or four right away that are wonderful prospects. But then they think, let's see what's on the next floor. So the third floor has husbands who are good-looking, great providers, and love children. And now they're just blown away. Here are all these good-looking guys. They know that they'll be provided for. They know that they'll love children. And again, they see several models they would really like. But they think, well, there's two more floors. How can we stop now? So they go up to the fourth floor, and here are husbands who are Good-looking, good providers love children, and love their wives, mothers, and their own mothers. They love their mothers, and so of course this is the the ultimate: a man who knows how to love a woman because he loves his mom. Mm. And they need to pick out a husband. They know they do, but they just can't imagine what's on that next floor, right? What could be on the next floor? They cannot deny the desire to go to the next floor. So they get in the elevator. They go up to the top floor, the fifth floor, and they get it out of the elevator.
0: They can't go down now.
1: They can't go down, exactly. And guess what they see on the fifth floor? No husbands. No man at all. It's empty. There's just a sign that says, see, this is just to prove that women are never satisfied. Mm. Now.
0: And is there, is there cats and pets up there, though? Consolation? They, furry consolation? They
1: need some kind of consolation. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there's. Margaritas—that's every woman's greatest <laughs> consolation. Well, it's mine, I guess. I shouldn't say everyone, but so. But here's the thing: across the street is the wife store. Now, if you go in the wife store on the first floor, you'll find good-looking women. Okay, really beautiful women. On the second floor, you will find wonderfully beautiful women who are also good cooks. And on the third floor, well, there is no. Th- third floor because no man wants anything more than a good looking woman who's a good cook
0: yeah i would say i stopped on the second floor yeah
1: yeah exactly <laughs> so i just think that's a funny story and i know it's probably offensive to some people and <laughs> grossly generalizing but... i'll create
0: a very offensive infographic to represent okay, that and there you go we can give you but credit. but i think it. it's a funny
1: story and i've told this joke a lot to people and i've had a lot of people tell me that they believe there's some truth to that. That, that as women, we are constantly trying to find that great man who is going to make our life filled with security and the goodness of life and create a create a home where we can in, we can bring children into it. But on the other hand, I think that that men are looking for. Much less in a wife than women are looking for in a husband. And it it can create a lot of problems in marriage or in any relationship when the man is completely satisfied, but the woman is still wanting so much more. And I think that leads to the breakup of a lot of relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so how long were you guys married uh, until I was born?
1: That's a great question. You were born in... 85? 85. 85. Four years. So four years. We're married in 1981. Four years. Mm-hmm. And I was born there in Durango, where you're from. Correct. You and Alex, your brother.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I have uh, two brothers, Alex and Woody. And then I have a little sister named Estelle. And we lived there in Durango as a family for how long? Two years. Just two years. Yeah. And then we moved back to San Diego. Correct. But it didn't go well there.
1: No, no. We had a lot of difficulty there. It was very difficult. We lived in San Diego for three years, very, very difficult years. And then Eric got a new job that transferred. It it was just, it was
0: financial difficulties
1: there. There were a lot of difficulties, but the big one was financial. It was just horrifically financial problems job problems but then we moved to denver and everything just wonderfully resolved itself and we lived a quite a different life when we finally were able to move to denver
0: and i'll try to answer the question that i first posed to you my first memory i have a couple of i think i have some vague memories of san diego Hmm. of uh a small uh, first floor apartment mm-hmm. that we had there. I vaguely remember that, but really not—not
1: mm-hmm.
0: not much. I think I do. Re- I remember flying. Ah, oh. I, th- I think I should probably call that our first memory because mm-hmm. I do remember flying. I remember that was. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I flew.
1: You did fly one other time before that, but well, actually two other times. But you were very very small. Mm-hmm. You weren't even two yet, so I don't think you remember.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember flying and just finding it very mm-hmm. exciting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which I, they say that your first memory has a lot to do with the way the rest of your life kind of goes or the lens through which you see the rest of your life. hmm And my life has been pretty exciting. so. hmm That platitude would hold some veracity, I think, probably for both of us, right? Yes. Okay. And then we moved to Denver, and we lived in a haunted house.
1: (laughs) We didn't live there first off. We lived in this lovely little apartment, uh, a townhound apartment, upstairs, downstairs. Where? Over in Littleton. Littleton. That's right. Remember, it was down, this road went down... Down this hill to our street, and we called our house the Hidden Valley Castle. That's
0: right. Do you it, remember
1: that? Something like that.
0: I don't remember that place much.
1: Yeah. Now, we only lived there a year. And mm-hmm. then we were able to buy a house. We were very happy about that. Because dad had
0: a, a career as a computer database administrator right, that right, was taken right. off.
1: And the money and the housing was so, so, so incredibly affordable. We're able to buy a Yeah home.
0: Well, how much did that house cost?
1: I, I think want... it I think it cost fifty thousand dollars. Wow. That I was know. a
0: different time. <laughs>
1: no, truly. It wasn't that long ago, but yeah that house definitely appeared to all of us to be haunted.
0: But not to Dad.
1: Unfortunately he escaped all those experiences the rest of us had.
0: Yeah. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? It
1: is. It is.
0: So, yeah, we lived in this house. It seemed like a pretty normal house, but we would just, we pretty consistently have uh, experience of uh, malicious, terrifying spiritual forces Yes, there.
1: definitely. And weird stuff, too. Weird stuff. You know, like we'd leave the house and we'd come home and find our front door standing open. Yeah. We'd find lights on we knew we turned off. Weird stuff.
0: And I'm trying to think if we ever saw things, if we ever saw ghosts. And I, I do remember, oh, I've talked to Gargana about this a couple of times. I remember an episode me and Alex had where we saw some weird things mm-hmm. in our bedroom at mm-hmm. night. We had gotten these, I think they were like dinosaur toys or something like that. Yeah. And we saw them kind of come alive. Yeah,
1: you both saw it together. It was crazy.
0: And we came to you in the morning and told you. Yeah, you, you
1: did. You, you, you did. You were not making it up. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That?
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could ask Alex <laughs> the opportunity yeah, to ask no, him Yeah, no, no, you
1: it. guys were utterly... It was something. We weren't quite saw. terrified
0: by it, were though? No, no, we were you kind were. of amused by it.
1: So here's the weird thing about that story that event happened on Easter morning. That's right. You remember that was Easter when it happened?
0: I remember it now that you mention it.
1: Wow, yeah, no, it's just, I don't know, it was strange. It was strange, yeah, there were many strange things happened, but that was very strange.
0: And did you ever see anything?
1: I did. I did. What was that? Well, one night when I was almost asleep, you know, that that in-between world where you're not awake and you're not asleep, but it's almost like it's its own little world, the world where you're dropping from one to the other. I was laying in bed and... I don't know if I opened my eyes and saw this or I saw it in my mind's eye. But there was this big rock about the size of a skateboard. Does that look like about the size of a skateboard?
0: I think skateboards are maybe a little bigger than that. Yeah,
1: maybe it was a little bigger. But maybe it wasn't as long as a skateboard. As long as a short skateboard. There was this big rock and it was falling right on my face. I saw it fall right on my face and it horrified and terrified me instantly. And I, I sat up right away, you know, in alarm and I screamed and sat up. And of course, there was nothing there. But after that happened, there were many, many times, actually many times where I was in that same place of just about to go to sleep and I'd be startled awake, and as I woke up, or was coming to wakefulness, I'd see this hand right in front of my face, covering my face, and as soon as I woke up, I'd see it pull away from my face. And I'd scream then, too, because it was so terrifying. I got to the point where that happened so often, me screaming as this hand's pulling away from my face, that... My husband sleeping next to me actually didn't wake up anymore. It happened that often. He just slept through it. Mm. And after a while, I just, I would shake it off and take a few deep breaths and go to, go back to sleep. But I, we did have, I did have some experiences like that.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. I recall I would get this. There was a sensation. There, there was something of a, of a sensation, yeah. perhaps a, auditory visual hallucination that i would get from time to time living there and it would often happen at night when i would feel like i was being crushed where i would feel just so very small and i would Mm. feel like there was like two giant Mm. rocks that were Mm. that were crushing me Mm. and then i'd hear a very odd sound, maybe like a, like a helicopter type of sound. I
1: remember that, Jonathan. That was a, God, I remember the first time you heard it. You came in our room and you were very, very, very upset and you could not express what had scared you so bad that you kept trying to describe this noise and the closest thing you finally ever got to was the helicopter noise yeah. but it wasn't really exactly a helicopter noise but i remember exactly. it ter- terrified you deeply
0: yeah it was and that seemed to be a a, a persistent thing i seemed to n- notice mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. from time to time and so when i was talking with stefan about this uh you know he's very, very rational kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And since I've been researching all this biohacking stuff, mm-hmm. I came to, and of course, you know, this whole episode, it, it's something that has given me some, some faith in a dimension, in a spiritual dimension mm-hmm. beyond, uh, beyond the obvious material world around mm-hmm. us. But since I've been researching biohacking stuff and I've learned so much about, about mold, and mm-hmm. mold toxicity and the responses that we have to mold toxicity kind of gave me a, a, a bit of a hypothesis on this that many, many homes have, have mold mm-hmm. in them. And a lot of times it can cause different, it can cause hallucinations. It can cause all sorts of health problems. It, it's, it's really quite a negative thing. If you, if you're going to live someplace, you want to actually be kind of mindful of if there's, if there's mold there mm-hmm. and, uh, are these kind of responses, maybe having health issues, maybe even having hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This can be a, a genetic thing, actually. And so when I was talking to Stefan about this, and I was saying that me and my brothers and my mothers all experienced this, uh, all these terrifying things there, but my dad didn't experience any of it. Perhaps, perhaps that was a mm-hmm. thing where there was where we were having a, uh, a, some kind of psychosis in response to mold. And because I have 50% of your genes, mm-hmm. I experienced it. We exp- the kids experienced it, but he did not. It's, it's, one way to, it's one way to look at things. And then it went away when we moved.
1: So, right? Right, it did. I agree with that, John. But here's a good question to think about why were our hallucinations of such a horrific nature if it was just a mold hallucination there's nothing to make them into something that was so dark and negative and terrifying mm. yeah. what what created that so you know and your listeners i'm sure know from everything i've said so far i do believe in that spiritual dimension I do believe in light and dark. I do believe that dark is out there. And it wants to destroy and hurt and scare and uses fear as a destructive tool. But I do think it is interesting. And you know, here's what I think, too. I used to think I knew everything. Uh, not every everything, but I used to think I knew all the answers. Your
0: certainty, higher degree of yeah, certainty, Yeah, I don't anymore.
1: I think there's a lot of things I don't know that none of us know. And faith is a great thing, it really is, but it doesn't mean you know all the answers. But I do have this, this idea that at some point we are going to know a lot more than we know now, and some of those things that we cannot explain, just like in ancient time they couldn't explain where thunder came from, why crops failed, why a little scratch would kill a person and another person would live through it. I mean, we know all those answers now, at least most of us do. I think someday we'll have the same kind of answers for this stuff. And I think someday we'll have a much greater understanding of the spiritual realm as well. I know that there's a lot of people that don't even want to acknowledge there's a spiritual realm. But I think it's as big and as real as our material world. We just don't have the tools to understand it, to diagnose, to analyze. But someday we will. And we'll have all kinds of answers we don't have now.
0: Would you say you've had uh, experiences that are positive of the spiritual realm, which are as visceral as those negative experiences?
1: Oh, absolutely. Can I share one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here we go. So many, many years ago, when you were a baby, you maybe not a baby, maybe you were two or three, we were living in San Diego. We didn't have much money. We'd had a lot of bad things happen. One of the things that had happened was I'd gotten in a bad collision, auto accident, and we were borrowing a friend's car because our car had been totaled. This friend's car was quite old, and it didn't have a working gauge, fuel gauge. It didn't have a working fuel gauge. And your dad and I had saved up a bunch of money, not a bunch, but enough money so we could go out on a date. We went out to the ocean area. Pacific Beach, and we watched a movie, and we were driving back from Pacific Beach, going east on Highway 8, and we were going to go to a restaurant we loved called Hungry Hunter. And we just came over this little hill from the beach, and there were several freeways all coming together at that point. There was five coming down from the north. We were on eight. There was a couple little local freeways coming in or out, and we had all these roads coming together. And there was no shoulder anywhere, just these cement walls with just 18 inches or two feet of blacktop between the lane and the wall. And and in that spot, we ran out of gas. And somehow we coasted to stop in this triangle, this tiny triangle of space, where roads were coming together, but it was a s- excluded space, mm-hmm. and we stopped there. And so cars were coming on our, ref- on our left, they were coming up from our right, from another road, and we were out of gas, and night was falling. And Eric said to me, I'm going to go get gas. I don't even think we had a gas can in the car. And he had to run across the freeway, because we were right in the middle of the freeway. He had to run across the freeway. And where we stopped, now there's a big hotel there. I went and looked at this on Google Maps recently. <laughs> there's a big hotel, but back then there was nothing. It was just open hills. And he had to find his way to a gas station. There was no Google Maps on your phone back then. You just hoped you'd find it. Get gas and then get back to me. Well, meanwhile, you know, as I said, night was falling. It got dark. Cars are whizzing past us. I am so scared. I am so scared. I am scared that someone's going to hit us because we're right out stopped in the middle of the freeway. Now we were in that little triangle of space, but that doesn't guarantee any safety. I was scared that if I sat up in the car, someone would see my head in the car, come back around and stop and kidnap me and Rape me and kill me, beat me up, whatever, sell me into slavery. I was afraid if I laid down on the seat and hid myself, people would come and jack our car. I was just terrified of the whole thing. I mean, I was really, really deeply, deeply afraid. And so I tried to pray, but that didn't help me at all. I tried and tried and tried to think of positive thoughts, but that didn't help me at all. And so I thought, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing worship songs and focus on God. But I was so terrified. I could only think of the smallest, tiniest little song that goes like this. Maybe some of you have heard it. It just says, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Sing it a little bit, please. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Now, here's the funny thing. I used to be a music director. I knew hundreds of songs. But that is the only one I could think of. Mm -hmm. And I just sang it over and over and over and over. And then I remembered a second one. And I sang that one over and over. And then I started to calm down. My heart rate started to go down. I'm like, okay, I'm good now. I'm good now. So I stopped singing. I'm okay now. And that fear just came back on me crushingly crushing fear, and I thought, oh, 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 nope, 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 can't do that, got to keep singing. So I decided I'm just going to sing till Eric gets back because I'm too terrified. So I sang, and I sang, and I got more relaxed and more comfortable and felt safer, but then I kept on singing more and more songs, and during the second time of singing, something very profound happened, maybe the most profound thing in my life. As I'm singing along and I'm feeling this sense that I'm okay, this peace starts to build in me. This calmness, it starts to build. And then it was like, it was just like as I continued to sing, and I was singing worship songs to God specifically, not just about God, but to him, singing to him, you are so good. You are, God, you are so good. It was like this light came down from heaven, and it just filled up my car. This brilliant, golden, beautiful light that was the most warm and wonderful thing so, I had so is ever is this something experienced. you could
0: see? And
1: I don't know it when I remember it. When I think about it now, I felt like I could see it, but I don't know if I saw it at the time. But Mm -hmm. the feeling was so powerful of being immersed and bathed in this light that was the actual presence of God, the actual presence of God, and that I was one hundred percent safe, absolutely safe in this light, in this love, in this peace, and it did it—it utterly. In, infiltrated every part of my being. And for many weeks afterwards, I still felt it with me. In fact, just talking about it now, I can deeply feel it again, that sense of being right there and, and truly, truly maybe the greatest feeling I've ever had, ever. You know, fearful, happy, joyful, aesthetic, whatever. That, that was a peak thing. And I know this isn't supposed to be a religious discussion, but I. No, I that's fine. and you. But I often think, oh, all the people who are so angry at God and don't believe He exists and have all these other different philosophies, I just wish they could have been in the car with me, and experienced that moment of what it feels like to be surrounded by the love of God. It was truly an incredible experience.
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of our listeners are pr- probably non religious. I, I assume probably don't have a lot of. Nowadays, you know, people that are into like personal development stuff, especially people who are interested in biohacking stuff, not very many of them are, are anti religious, but a lot of them are kind of uh, agnostic. No, I- ag- agnostic type of people. And so I was also. Uh, I've also had some pretty visceral spiritual type experiences. Not quite to that same, not quite to that same level. And then I've done all these different biohacking things and uh, mindfulness, mm-hmm. mindfulness practice type things. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to experience the connection between these sorts of things. That if, for example, if I, if I do something like use uh, that M wave device, and uh do a really focused meditation session and maybe take some some different nootropics at the same time i can get into a pretty visceral flow state which is probably not that different than what you experience there and so the the the, the kind of takeaway is that if you're if you if if you're not going to be a religious person which if you're not you know you should Look at both sides of the arguments, you know, read books about atheism and then read books of people uh, like the kind of books I was talking about in my interview with uh, Lincoln Cannon, who's the, the Christian transhumanist, um, you know, look at both sides of the argument. But if you are going to be a non-religious person, if you're going to be a secular person, you have a hard time with finding mechanisms for finding the peace within that equal what faith does. Mm. You know, like, like that's... Mm. Uh, in that situation, you're, yeah, your faith saved you. Mm. You know, how often do you hear stories of, you know, some woman, or often it's a woman that's in a situation and then she freaks out a bit and then she, something worse happens to her. And that, that night could have gone a whole lot worse for you. But because you have uh, because you have that faith, because you have the power of prayer, you were able to mm. emotion you were able to mm. enter
1: mm-hmm.
0: whatever happened to you I know whatever happened to you and so if yeah if you're not going to be religious, you know you really w- want to look at the the flow state hacking stuff that I talk about so that you have a, a modicum mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. available. To mm-hmm. you when inevitably mm-hmm. you run into a life threatening kind of situation mm-hmm. like o- that.
1: Or a soul threatening. Yeah. Sometimes in our safe society, we're not going to have that many life threatening situations, but I think a lot of us experience soul threatening situations on a much more frequent basis. Mm hmm.
0: Okay. What was your worst memory from being a mom?
1: <laughs> oh <God. laughs> okay, so I can give you like a specific memory or an overall memory. Yeah, let's do a specific one. Okay. Okay, well, <clears throat> so I have ADHD and I had four kids. And I was overwhelmed constantly by the needs and the responsibilities. And I was in no way equipped emotionally, mentally, to be a good mom. Even though I wanted to be a great mom with all my heart. I've never wanted anything as much as that. So there were many, many, many things I did that now I cringe in horror at that were terrible parenting. So I could tell you many, many stories, but that's not exactly what you asked. I would say probably the worst moment of being a mom for me mm, was my third son, your brother Woody. When he was 16, he was diagnosed with bone cancer in his leg.
0: Osteosarcoma.
1: Osteosarcoma. And the oncologists did everything they could to save that leg but eventually it had to be amputated. And I think after he came out of surgery from that amputation and he was missing the bottom half of his leg and just that moment, that terrible moment that his leg had been cut off and the look in his eye when he looked at me after he came out of surgery, that was a really bad moment.
0: Oh yeah 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 it'd be, it'd be hard to imagine anything worse than that and well I mean there would be something worse than that it would be
1: right right to lose that child but, but
0: yeah it was I can painful. see I can see how that would be
1: and they they put on a prosthetic right away. It's just a simple, dumpy little prosthetic. But they give it right away because they found that for people who undergo an amputation, it's very difficult to have that limb missing visually. So they put on this simple prosthetic right away. So there's at least something there as they begin this enormously long recovery period. So he did. He had this little kind of plastic Prosthetic plastic little mm-hmm. foot. Oh, good lord! I just will never forget seeing that plastic foot.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, it was very painful for me.
0: Yeah, and and you know during that time, uh, you were there beside Woody's hospital bed for years.
1: Years, truly.
0: And wow, well, I you know I I I kind of avoided that.
1: Well, you know, I was kind of mad at you kids for doing that. Estelle did too. We drug her along. But then I talked to some other moms, cancer moms. That's what we call each other. They said that our children were all the same way. And that helped me understand it's its kind of unbearable for your children. They should not be expected to move through all this cancer stuff with their sibling. It's very hard. It's impossibly painful so I don't think that anymore I think you you know when you were much older John you were just trying to do your life yeah you by know? that
0: time I was kind of getting started with my entrepreneurial career right, and I think right, I lived downtown then. right
1: you didn't even live at home anymore. and
0: it was I was like well I, I really hope my brother survives yeah but it was I yeah I I I don't even know if I chose to avoid it, but I was like, I'm just going to stay real busy with what I'm doing and try to give Woody and you guys calls every week to see how stuff is going. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I hear, okay. When I, when I go back to this, these memories of that episode with Woody's cancer, fighting cancer for five years.
1: No longer than that. Definitely. How long do you think? You know, it's so funny because it is such a blur, but I would say, I'd say probably more like seven. We can ask him. Okay,
0: yeah, because he had cancer three times, four times?
1: He had had the initial diagnosis, and then he had the re diagnosis that caused the uh, amputation. But then he had, I believe, five more diagnoses after that where they continued to find tumors in his lungs from the bone cancer that had. Migrated all over his all over his body. You know, the lungs lungs are this ideal place to for those cancer cells to sit down all those juicy, warm little nooks and crannies and start growing. So he, so I think he had seven diagnoses altogether. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and so when I think about this now, I have a different emotion than you. the ang- The emotion I have over this is anger. Mm-hmm. because of of all the books that i've read and all the things that i've learned about uh about biohacking and and about health and it seems to me that that whole uh, epi- it seems to me that our that our family probably didn't have to go through all that it seems to me that that woody just became a uh, yet another profit center for the pharmaceutical hospital industrial <laughs> complex because as i've as i've read some more books and learned about all these different types of supplements yeah, uh, yeah. learned about yeah. things like the c60 learned yeah. about things like fasting the gershon le- yeah. yeah learned about um all the different ways to detoxify yeah this uh the what do they call it the the hack slash and burn method Mm -hmm. for cancer which is as soon as they pick up a little as soon as they pick up a a tumor somewhere in their scan in in your scans they just say okay let's pump more radiation you know hey you got some some cells that are going awry in your body let's stick a bunch of radiation in there Mm -hmm. so that you have a whole lot more cells that start to have this particular issue, and then let's do some surgery so we can spread the cancer cells around a bit more, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and then we can bill Medicare for five hundred thousand dollars for an operation.
1: I, I I believe that someday, Jonathan, we will look at how we've dealt with cancer in this modern age with these horrible poisons that we pump into people's bodies. Someday we'll look back at this and say, My God, we were monsters. But now the medical field, this is the best they have. So if you're going to go to a regular doctor, regular oncologist, this is all they're going to be willing to do because they feel like, as scientists, this is the best they have to offer. And they are very, very skeptical of all these other methods because they're not trained by them. Even though some medical schools are now starting to open their doors in their eyes and their hearts to more healthy practices in treating disease than just going down to the pharmaceutical route. And you know, if I got cancer, I would definitely go the natural route. But when it's your child and they're 16 and there's other people involved in making the decision, Mm -hmm. you just don't have that same freedom.
0: Okay. So you came all the way here to Bulgaria to meet my new family. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really kind of funny. So my last name is Roseland, of course. And Bulgaria is officially, unofficially the land of roses because mm. they produce a lot of roses. So it's kind of one of those, those twists of fate in <laughs> life that makes you think that perhaps your life is like a novel. That someone is writing because hmm. it's uh, poetic, mm-hmm. you know. And so you've come here to, yeah, to meet my wife, Gergana, mm-hmm. and to meet uh, their family. What what was your impression of Gergana? I believe you first met her on Skype, right?
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I'm just shaking my head and smiling in this moment of silence. I love Gergana. I think she is just the perfect woman for you, John. I love how cute she is and tiny and vivacious and funny. Like one time, I have to tell your listeners this, Jonathan sent me a video. In fact, I was looking for it last night. He sent me this short video just talking to me about something. I don't even know if it was a minute long. Maybe it was two minutes, but it was a short video. And Gergana got behind him and gave him bunny ears. And he goes, Oh, great, bunny ears. Thanks, Gergana. But she kept those bunny ears up the entire video. <laughs> she's very playful. And she's but she's got this like super pragmatic side to her as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's very Confident and able to hold her own in this very authentic way. She's not trying to be this super confident modern woman. She is a super confident modern woman. She's many great qualities.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I would say that the, the, the relationship we have, me meeting her... A lot of people, when they're talking about their, their spouse, or they're talking about a a love story, they, there's, there's a sense of entropy in this story that they're, you know, you'll hear people say, Oh, I was just so fortunate. I was just so fortunate to meet this person. You know, you hear that a lot, or people believe that, you know, God delivered them their soulmate or whatever, or they found their soulmate because that's what the destiny was. And, (laughs) <laughs> that's not the case with us with us i would say that our relationship is a result of the the passion that i had for personal development mm. and for and 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 really for for knowledge and it's i would say that our relationship is is a result of me not being a natural at at anything i'm i'm not a I'm a skilled person, not a talented person. I'm, I'm pretty bad at almost everything. Oh
1: my gosh, John, I could not disagree more.
0: <laughs> okay, well, well I'll, I'll try to kind of make a point and then you can make a counterpoint. And so I, uh, for the longest time, I was very bad at meeting girls, uh, I was bad at seducing women, bad at relationships. Uh, once I got a little bit better at those things, I was bad at choosing women, bad at keeping the relationships going but like anything else if if you want to be a good website developer or you want to be a good martial artist or you want to be as healthy as possible the solution is always more knowledge and more practice and i would say that yeah over uh Really since the time that I left the United States, I think it was about eight years ago now. And then I lived here in Europe. I've been really on this personal development quest. And at first it was doing the pickup artist thing while I was learning Spanish and practicing that out and figuring out, figuring out women a bit more, figuring out how to bring women through this roller coaster of emotions that they crave. But then I you know I started listening to like uh, the Stefan Molyneux podcast, a couple of other good podcasts that that talk about relationships and I started to get a real specific idea of like what what I might lo- want long term and uh, and so, some of these influences all all internet influences interesting you know the, the internet god it, it causes so many problems but on the other hand it can be oh yeah s- such such a great thing and so i started to come across you know all these uh reading books and 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 new media kinds of things that were reframing well you know a lot, a lot of the kinds of things that you taught me mm-hmm. oh, that and and that my religion had taught me mm-hmm. a long time ago but putting them in putting them in new language, putting them in a, in a, in a refreshing mm-hmm. context. And they really got me thinking a lot more about the long term of what I wanted my life to look like. And I would say that our relationship uh, is, is a result of that. And I would also say about Gergana, she, uh, she, she is a, a great woman. Every day I'm like, wow, wow, <laughs> this, this is wonderful. But I would say that that what uh, what makes her so special, that uh, that loveliness that we both that we both detect in her, that is something that me and her are creating in each other. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, I think probably the majority of my audience is probably men. Some of them are single and there's this myth. Amongst men that you can find a woman out there that's, uh, like attractive and fun, but she's also like the kind of person that, I don't know, uh, is very like libertarian and, you know, is entrepreneurial and ambitious and very, uh, rational and that she has like, you know, the, the sexy feminine qualities in combination with all of those type of character character qualities Mm -hmm. that you would seek as a long-term partner and that's kind of unicorn it's pretty hard to find a woman just like Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. and so i think what worked in our situation is that i found someone that had really really great feminine energy Mm -hmm. and then uh, but then i found someone that was that was somewhat rational Mm-hmm. And that is something that's a, that's a little bit uh, geographically specific. He, uh, here in Eastern Europe, and you can find other other men who have you know traveled around the world and dated different women mm-hmm. will say well, you'll hear the same thing that Eastern European women are a bit more rational. Mm-hmm. So I found that I cu- I found that I could uh, I could sculpt her mm-hmm. a bit into what was uh, good for her into what was good for her and into you know the kind of woman that I would want to spend the rest of the rest of my life with.
1: And uh, I just have to ask how is her sculpting going with you?
0: Oh I would say I would you know it''s it's a bit of it's a bit of a, a, bit of a, a yin-yang thing. Mm-hmm. So I've probably influenced her more than she's influenced me but she definitely has influenced me mm-hmm. you know i she's she's tempered uh a lot of my a lot of my impulsivity mm-hmm. and some of my tendency to be really harsh and yeah. and and critical of myself and there's also there there's different the uh, as a guy who's like an ambitious guy, there's this tendency towards workaholism. Mm-hmm. And especially doing, being an internet entrepreneur, there's this tendency to just spend way too much time on the computer. Right. And if I, if I look at my day, are, you know, I begin the day and end the day with her, and then I take little breaks with her mm-hmm. throughout the day. And this is, if, if you look at, you know, what are the best practices for being the most happy and for being the most healthy? Well, it's, it's not, you know, sitting in front of your computer after doing some modafinil and just working on your computer right. for 12 hours. Right. Uh, and yeah, having a wife, having a family, uh, having a little dog, hopefully we'll have kids uh, sometime in the near future. Mm-hmm. That's something that, Adds a little bit of those those natural cycles to right, your right,
1: day. Right. So, you know, my husband's son, I'm not going to say his name, but, you know, he is a... This is your second husband. Yeah, my second husband, his son, he's a very popular entertainer, and he... Uh, goes all over the country and the world doing all kinds of different things. But he's never been married and he's never had children. And we love his socks off. But there's a whole po- bunch of his life that has not been able to be shaped and transformed by the pressure, even though it's positive pressure, it's still pressure of managing a family and living In a relationship with a wife or a partner and we just see that this is one of the great shaping agents Mm -hmm. that's just built into our DNA that we want to join we want to join we want to create a long-term relationship and we want to produce offspring and by doing that then we enter into this cauldron of transformation and maturity and growth that's wonderful. And it'll just do it to us if we'll just submit ourselves to the process. And you're saying you're seeing that already in the both of you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's this idea that a lot of men have, which is just that, oh, you know, I'm going to travel the world and do some business and sleep with a lot of women and uh, do all sorts of interesting hedonistic things and pursue all sorts of interesting little entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. projects Mm -hmm. and passions and build my own celebrity. And so I've been hanging out with those kinds of guys for like eight years now. You've been
1: one of those guys. Oh,
0: yeah. And and the truth is, those kind of guys are really cool until they're about 45 years old. (laughs) And then they're they are kind of awkward at parties mm-hmm. and they're they're all that cynicism starts to add up mm-hmm. they're just <laughs> well, I it's think, just not it's not a long-term strategy well, for happiness and i think
1: when you get to that age too you think wow if if i got married today and i had my first child a year from now i would be 65 when they're going off to college You know, Mm -hmm. they start thinking that thought, and it's a sobering thought. Up until then, you've just been fine. You think about that. You look at your life, and you realize, my gosh, I'm so much further along than I thought I was. It can be a scary thought.
0: Mm hmm Okay, so you have a flight to catch? I do. Shortly? Can you give us a rundown of uh, some projects that you're working on that are noteworthy that you might want to direct people to? I would
1: love to talk about this. So um, I've been working with this fabulous coach for the last six months, and I am making great progress on moving forward towards some big things that I want to do. But I want to do share about my book. I have a book that I've written, a novel. It's The Story of My Heart. If I never write another word after this novel, I will know that one of my more most important purposes in life has been accomplished. It's the story of a great artist. It's a story of how he started off his life. In fact, the opening... In Durango. In the Durango. In the opening scene is him skiing down a hill at night in the dark, because he's a tremendously gifted athlete. But he has a secret problem, and that is he's a closet alcoholic. So he's skiing down this hill at night, going the fastest he's ever gone, but he's also drunk. And he gets into this terrible, terrible crash. He spins out of control. This happened back in the year 1965. It's set in real time. So he doesn't have quick-release bindings, and the skis break his legs, and he tumbles and rolls until he almost hits his head on a tree, which is often deadly. He goes unconscious, and by the time the rescue workers find him, he's been in a he's been unconscious in this freezing, freezing cold night in January. And he goes into a coma, blah 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 blah. The injury has ruined his life of athleticism and his desire to compete in the 1968 Olympics. And that's the first opening scene of the book. And from there, it takes him on this hero's journey of just incredible magnitude. But because of everything he goes to to become the greatest artist he does, he does something very special with his art at the end of his life that leaves an impact on the world. And this is a story from my heart. And I'm so delighted to write it and get it out to where people can read it and I hope they enjoy it. What's the name of the book again? It's called Glasswell. That's the name of the main character, Glasswell. Daniel Glasswell.
0: Fantastic. Do you think we can take the first chapter of that and link it with this podcast? I would
1: love to do that. I'd love to get that out.
0: Because yeah, that first chapter was was great. I enjoyed it. We read it here. Thank you. In that very chair.
1: (laughs) Yay! It felt special.
0: Okay. So, you're Connie Aikens. I am. And I'm Jonathan, and I look forward to
1: continued conversation with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed this immensely.